the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Think about it. Facebook, email, texting, in many ways, we find it difficult to communicate with the people that we see. We, we tend to allow these devices to kind of get in the way, and then you think of it, let alone the challenges that we face, mental, prioritical, emotional perhaps, that we might face as the creation attempting to communicate with the Creator. God, in fact, does wish to have a communal relationship with us. That means more than just reading the Word to hear what He has to say, but He wants to hear from us too. We commonly call that prayer. But what exactly does prayer look like? We often struggle with prayer. Um, For some of us, it comes easier perhaps than for others. For many, it's something you simply do when you're in trouble. How do we learn not just to pray, but to pray big? That's the title of a brand new book by our special guest today. He is the speaker on Truth For Life, heard each Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. right here on KFAX, best-selling author and pastor, Alistair Begg. And Pastor Begg, again, a delight to have you join us on the program. Well, it's a privilege always. Nice to talk with you, too, Craig. And what an important topic, because, you know, I think of all the things that believers are perhaps challenged by, maybe discipline of reading God's Word, getting to church on time, things of that sort, one of the big struggles seems to be this whole topic of prayer. We we do it sometimes when we feel like we're in trouble. We know that we need to be doing it, and yet the understanding of it exactly, not just what it means to pray, but as your new book title suggests, to pray big, that tends to elude us. Yeah, I'm afraid I have to say yes to to all of the above. But, you know, when I think along these lines, I, I see my own face first, you know, in the mirror of, uh, of life and in the mirror of God's Word. And uh, the challenge of prayer is, is an indication, I think, of, you know, what Paul says in Ephesians 6, that, that we're engaged in a in, in uh, a continual and irreconcilable war that we are uh, dealing not with flesh and blood but with spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. And, and one of the ways in which uh, our inadequacy is most uh, clearly seen is in the fact that we are so little involved with, if you like, our commanding officer who leads us out onto the field of battle and, and in victory too. And I wonder if part of it is because we 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 don't have a lot of practice at it. I, I think, for example, Alistair, about uh, those that might have the occasion to give a public address. Maybe you need to give a, a report at work or at school, something of that sort. And all of a sudden, the priority of effective communication takes on a whole new meaning. We're practicing in front of the mirror. We're getting ready. Even though we've spoken publicly into others our entire life, suddenly this new challenge puts before us a, a sense of, of urgency of practicing. I'm wondering if maybe the same thing needs to be done in a sense when it comes to prayer. Is this a skill, so to speak, that, that needs to be developed? Well, 
it, I think the difference in that would be uh, that it emerges from from a relationship. It would be very strange to have a relationship, a meaningful relationship with anyone uh, without conversation. I mean, the only way that that would be the case is if we were unable to speak. But um, And so, you know, our understanding of who God is and what God has done is the is the the seedbed, if you like, of this, the awareness that God is in Jesus, our Heavenly Father, that He delights to hear our prayers, that He loves it when we come to Him. He doesn't He doesn't uh, want us just to go on and ramble and ramble and ramble and say the same thing any more than we want people to do that in conversation with us. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's a, it's a challenge. And whether whether what we need is practice as much as uh, we need um, uh, just an increased awareness of the wonder and, and goodness and, and love of God. And it sounds like what you're saying then, Alistair, is that the relational component is so key. I mean, think of uh, maybe um, traveling back to a high school class reunion, and we sit down with a person that was our best friend in school. We've known each other our entire lives. We're able to communicate best with those that we know best is maybe uh, the challenge of prayer, a reflection of the fact that we don't really know God in the way he wants us to know him? Well, whether you, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a salutary thought, but I think I think there is a measure of of that that um, and this is where our how do we how do we know God? Uh, how do we understand His revelation of Himself and uh, as Creator of uh, of the universe, as the one who uh, you know providentially overrules things, who is sovereign over who's in the White House is is the one who remains sovereign no matter what happens with Brexit, that, he, that, the, that the entire cosmos is, is dependent upon him, so that our considerations of uh, global warming or whatever our uh, preoccupation might be are all set within that framework, so that when we come to the beginning of the day or to the end of the day and we call out to God, uh, we call out to him in the awareness of who he is, in the vastness of who he is, and if we've only got a tiny view of God, if, if, if we view God as like an idol, as a, that somehow or another that he exists for us rather than that we exist for him, then it will be no surprise if our prayer life is, is minimal, if, if present at all. I'm intrigued by the title of the book, Pray Big, Learn to Pray Like an Apostle. Um, you focus on the Apostle Paul. Um, and specifically, I would think um, there's two key verses or chapters within the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 15 through 20, and again, Ephesians three fourteen through 21, where you really see Paul pouring out his heart to God in, in a fashion that suggests that not only is there deep communion taking place there, but he really seems to demonstrate a, a sense of understanding of who God is, who his character is. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm just curious as to what led you to, to zero in on Paul and that sense of using Paul as, as a mentor, as a role model, really, for all of us to learn how to pray. Well, that's, that's a good question, and, and the answer in, in the immediate is that in the last four years or so, um, we, we have been uh, 
I think my congregation would say we have been stuck in the book of Ephesians, and uh, and one of the one of the areas in which we have been confronted, if you like, as a congregation and as individuals too, is with this whole matter of prayer. And in studying expressly Paul's prayers, as we've worked uh, through through the the entire letter, uh, what I think it struck me most forcibly was pretty well the absence in his prayers of the things which are the sort of normal components of our prayers. Uh, you know, please be with so-and-so, please help Mr. So-and-so, he has a job interview, uh, please help grandma not to fall out of her wheelchair, you know, I mean, things that, that are not irrelevant, that they're not uh, things that we, indeed, they're things that we can come to God with. But in Paul's case here, it's just obvious that his horizon is much larger, his concerns are much deeper, and, and it's that, that's what got me started on this. I, I looked, I, I reflected on my own approach to God in prayer in comparison to what he's doing, and I said, you know, I need to learn how to pray properly. I need to learn how to pray like an apostle. And certainly, you know, when we engage in prayer, it also also have that I think acknowledgement of the fact that we we are dependent upon God. I mean, you know, we we almost sometimes, as you say, have that laundry list that we go to the Lord with. Uh, you know, I need help at the job, and the the kids are having problems in school, and things of that sort. And 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 I guess in a in an ancillary way, it acknowledges our dependence. But but there's a deeper level at that, isn't there? Relationally speaking. Yeah, there's, there, there certainly is. You know, it, it, and, and the good thing is that, you know, God who knows us thoroughly knows when we sit down and stand and so on, as Psalm 139 says. Um, you know, we, we, he knows our hearts. He knows, you know, he knows how, um, you know, how hopeless we are, if you like. And, and so we're not, you know, we're not haired for our much asking. We're not heard for our eloquence or for our, you know, or, or, or the, the perfection, if you like, of our prayers and so on. Um, so we don't want to fall foul of that in, in some kind of mechanistic way. That prayer, as I say in one of the chapters, is spiritual, but it's not impractical. So that the, the great underpinning of it is, as you say, in terms of the the wonder of God and of uh, the revelation of Himself, and you know, when I when I think about what that means for us as a congregation, I mean, I've been involved in church life now since what? Well, in pastoral ministry since 1975, and when I think about gatherings expressly for prayer on the part of a congregation, so many of those times have become uh, stultified. One might even actually say boring, um, tending towards almost irrelevancy, because every Monday night or every Thursday night or every whatever night it is, the same people come back and say the exact same things all over again, and we we and 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 many of them are, are so time bound and are vastly different from saying. Uh, Father, I want you to open our eyes so that we might know the immeasurable greatness of your power that is at work amongst those of us who believe. And we, we want you now to, of your great power, to impact, uh, for example, the nation of Iran. Uh, we, are, we, we are praying expressly now because Jesus is a resurrected Lord and King. We, we're asking you that in ways that will not be 
evident to us until eternity to answer our longing cries for men and women to understand who Jesus is and why he came. Goodness, that's vastly different from from simply saying, you know, and Mrs. Reynolds is back in because post-operatively she had a hiatal hernia, you know. Now, don't get me wrong. God is interested in all these things. But what I discovered is that Paul was not praying about them. He wasn't praying about the fact that he was in jail. He wasn't asking to get out of jail. He wasn't asking for his eyesight to be restored. He was asking these immense things. Today, a look at Pray Big, Learn How to Pray Like an Apostle. The new book, by the way, is available for a donation of any amount to Truth For Life. To get more information, you can simply log on to truthforlife.org forward slash pray big. There's an extensive interview up there that is conducted um, uh, with Alistair about the book. And again, you can receive your copy of Pray Big for a donation of any amount. Simply go to truthforlife.org forward slash pray big. We'll take a brief time out back with more of our conversation. Alistair Begg from Truth For Life as our visit continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to our conversation. A couple of more moments with Alistair Begg, speaker on Truth For Life, the broadcast, of course, each Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. We're talking about a new and, I believe, important book called Pray Big. And as we've been discussing, this is really an opportunity for us to, to rethink not just the power of prayer, but the communion of prayer and what that means. The book, by the way, is available if you go online to truthforlife.org forward slash Pray Big, and you can get your own copy for a donation of any amount. That's truthforlife.org forward slash pray big. Uh, Alistair, sort of before the break, uh, you were alluding to the notion, and I think a lot of us do this, that we tend to go to the throne of grace, and we cry out when we're in calamity, when we're in desperation, uh, but God is really desirous of much more, and and in that much more, you, you use the example of Paul's prayers that we see outlined in the book of Ephesians that really is demonstrative of of communicating with a God that he really knows intimately. Take us a little bit deeper in that aspect. Well, just in in reflecting on uh, what we were saying in that first segment, I don't want for a moment to create the impression that uh, the, the, the things, the, the mundane and routine things of our lives are not to be brought before God in prayer. Uh, one of one of the sentences that um, stands out uh, to me is that at one point I say, all that matters may be brought before God, but we, but we must always bring before God those things that matter most. And the things that matter most are the things of eternal significance. If you think, I think it's Don Carson who, who said on one occasion, if you, if you listen to us pray, we spend far more time uh, asking God to keep believers out of heaven than asking him to keep unbelievers out of hell. Mm. In other words, we're just saying, please uh, bring Mr. So-and-so home and everything, you know, as if, as if the issues of time and health are really the question, when in point of fact, you know, 
Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but be afraid of the one who is able to cast you down into hell. In other words, this eternal reality of a day that we're going to face when we stand before God. When, when that begins to, uh, uh, you know, fill, uh, fill our thinking, and, and we realize that for all of our best labors and all of our best sermons and our best apologetics and all of our endeavors to try and convince our fellow workers and our friends and our family members and so on, and, 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 and when we've done all of that, we turn around and say, why did we never ask God to do this? Why did we never ask him to, 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 to show himself strong in this way? Well, what, what are we really saying is, whether we like it or not, is, you know, I'm more effective on my feet giving an apologetic talk than I am on my knees asking God to open somebody's blind eyes. And what's curious about that is it is demonstrative of a notion that there's praying to God our way based on our singular priority list. And again, I underscore, as you did, that that isn't to suggest that we we can't go to God with prayer and supplications for the things that are burdening us. Uh, There's a cry of the human heart to want to communicate with God and and share our heaviest burdens. But at the same token, I think what you're suggesting is that we, we should also pray with the knowledge of God and the things that are important to him, because clearly he's going to be the one that's going to be desirous to to reveal himself to that neighbor, that friend, that family member uh, that that we wish to reach for Christ. And so, to acknowledge that in our prayer toward him, I would think would be would be ultimately more powerful, because we're really p- praying with the intent of the heartbeat of what's important to God Himself. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. You know, Paul is. Paul's praying here uh, for, for those who have come to faith in Jesus, and he's praying uh, that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. It's very interesting. In other words, that they might see clearly. And what does he want them to see? Well, he wants them to see the wonder of the fact that they're chosen uh, by God, that they've been adopted as children, that they're redeemed by his blood, that they have been brought into the great plan of God for the world, and that they have an inheritance in eternity that is promised to them, and that they have the Holy Spirit who now lives within them, guaranteeing that they will reach their final destination. Well, I think on the average Tuesday, I need to be reminded of those things. And it is in the awareness of that, that I can then learn to thank God for it, and also that I can pray for others the very same things that Paul was praying for the Ephesians. You know, the Many times in pastoral counseling, where people come with express questions, well, what am I going to do with this? In tackling those practicalities, often the answer lies somewhere else. You know, I, help me to, to uh, forgive my wife, okay? Do you understand the nature of God's forgiveness in the gospel? Well, no, I've never really thought about that. Well, then, perhaps if you ponder that, then this may follow from that. And so often we've got the cart before the horse. When we talk about praying big, uh, maybe a, a line of delineation here that some people might erroneously think that it suggests that we, we, we can't address things that are, that are small concerns. 
um, or that praying big means being on your knees for eight hours continuously locked in your prayer closet. At, at the end of the day, and, and to kind of wrap up our conversation today, when you when you suggest that we should learn how to pray like an apostle and learn to pray big, ultimately, what are we hoping to accomplish here, both in terms of moving the hand of God and in our relationship with Him? Well, we... We, where the book both really starts and ends is with the awareness of our dependence. And so I think that if somebody read this book and said, you know, I get, I get that now. I realize that to pray is an admission and an expression of dependence, number one. Uh, that I have been far too self-assured, and I'm actually quite self-righteous. There's a lot of the Pharisee in me. And so, in other words we're being confronted by our own position of helplessness, and then at the same time made aware of the vastness of God's provision and of his, the fact that he is on our side, if you like, that he desires these things for us. So that as uh, one of my friends Kevin DeYoung says in commenting on the book, he says this book helps you feel not just like you should pray, but that you can and I, and I suppose that, more than anything else, is what I hope will happen from this, that, that people don't read this and find that it is just, if you like, a guilt trip, or, or that it is uh, a mechanism, you know, six, six keys or whatever else it is, that it is, that it is better than that, if you like, in the sense that it brings us again to the goodness and grace of God, if we, being earthly, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give good things to them that ask Him? And then starting to ask Him for the good things that are eternal in their significance, even though we are creatures of time. Once again, the book is called Pray Big, Learn to Pray Like an Apostle. Newly released, it's available for a donation of any size to Truth For Life Ministries. Again, you can simply go online to Truth For Life dot org forward slash pray big and for a donation of any size they'll send that book to you by return mail that's truthforlife.org forward slash pray big and our thanks to alistair Begg, speaker on truth for life author of this new book pray big for being with us don't forget to catch the program each monday through friday at 7 30 a.m right here on kfax And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think about your relationship with others, so much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we, we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God 
and the way it impacts so many parts of our life. Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psychopharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delightful delight now, to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever, the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science, brain science, is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible, rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of, uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, and the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. You actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and, uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and the, and the keflins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, uh, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to be this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church 
lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God based on maybe the the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God. You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator, who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and things changed, and you, you can see that history where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the Crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to impose rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that, that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our, our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's, uh, what's uh, striking is that m- most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, somebody in a Wiccan camp wor- worshiping, you know, white witchcraft, and these they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking, though, is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed them, but you can find some that are worshiping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak? Uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in, in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I... Um, was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have, down on those who do look on God as somehow being, un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way, and so they really challenged us, and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept, and uh, these ideas were very challenging for me, and I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God God's word, and not have to simply say, "Well, I believe," and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any any evidence or facts. And uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and and validating to to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, 
in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, et cetera, et cetera, find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint uh, on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even is a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, and who is self-sacrificial and beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I've had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors. And this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chron- chronic fear and anxiety going, whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the interesting of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly, and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong. And it doesn't go your way, and it doesn't feel good, and you just don't, you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. I wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life, written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. Look, the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give a mental assent to this around the 
around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4.8, a passage of Scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, Finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things are honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally, and yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like, it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here now. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, We know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely, and I, and this is what we've shown in in the in the uh, from the science and from the in the book is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so there's actually, neurobiologically, there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man, they lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children, if their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical, love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a uh, childhood. Um, 
we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten Son on our behalf. And we, we, some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug-crazed, alcoholic-driven, uh, abusive father. And so the notion of being able to equate a loving heavenly Father who sacrifices his Son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right. And that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way. And that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals. And so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. We talk about this notion in Scripture of uh, bringing our thoughts into captivity. How can we rewire all of this? Um, you know, this is a great point. And um, I, put, I point out in the book that the way the, the brain is designed is that the, the, there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons and influence the proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So probenef, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then that enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a new language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory and you keep practicing your firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior. But can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit. You're still producing the enzyme. You're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger. And so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Mm. So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been 
raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or, or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So it, if, if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared and, and as a result um, has, has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships, as we mentioned a moment ago. How do we retrain that process? Yeah, this is, uh, in our book, we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence, and we've, and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture, all Scripture is given by God, for inspired by God, is given for instruction, and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. Scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without Scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without Scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then Scripture alone without the other two. I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God, but we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease, and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the... the uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8 
of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and, and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of Life Live. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.